0: Inside Vegas is presented by MyBookie.ag. MyBookie.ag is the official online sportsbook of the Inside Vegas podcast, as well as the Sports Gambling Podcast Network. Use promo code SGP50 to receive a 50% deposit bonus today. Inside Vegas is also brought to you by Odd Shark. Odd Shark has the latest betting trends available nowhere else, as well as betting picks from their supercomputer. Check out all of their quality content and betting trends at oddshark.com. episode of the Inside Vegas podcast. I apologize for a little bit of a late release this week. Uh <laughs> some things going on. If you know anything about moving, it's the absolute worst. Um, but nevertheless, we are here now and we're continuing this little mini series uh, of niche handicapping and markets that are kind of primed to be explored and exploited. Um, and just kind of talk about, you know, some of the best people in these markets to try to you know figure out some other ways to to make money other than just joining the general public betting football baseball basketball um in some areas that are kind of only kind of bet amongst professionals um Professional bettors are kind of notorious for for betting these markets, including you know WNBA and uh, some of these niche stuff that that's just not explored by the day to day casual bettor. Um, mostly because uh, Vegas doesn't offer a lot of these things, honestly. Um, but with the introduction of kind of offshore, uh, and I'm sure as anyone know, as everyone knows, their local books, um, these things are kind of all over the place now. So um, that's the, it's another thing that you know Vegas doesn't have kind of all the options that uh, offshore does. Um, base, or Vegas is still not hanging team total for baseball or football outside of uh, playoffs and kind of primetime spots. So um, whether you live in Vegas or you don't, um, I think it's it's kind of important to kind of be able to shop around and get the best of the number, of course. But even to get down on some of some of these areas, um, you need to have multiple books, It's just kind of how it is in today's sports betting landscape landscape. Um, So we're going to be bringing on the white whale, uh, one of my absolute favorite people in the world. Um, He was one of the first people that we highlighted on the uh, social media player podcast uh, or uh, written uh, article that was um, one of the first ones that was done. Um, He has amassed such a great following, has his own... Uh, podcast titled The Deep Dive, which is an NFL uh, heavy podcast during that season. Um, And after that, they touch on everything. And one of Wales' best sports among any is tennis. So that's what we're going to be doing today is looking at the tennis market and all things betting tennis and kind of the grand slams um, and how that differs from day-to-day tennis betting when there's a tournament just about every week or month. Um, Kind of talk about the futures markets, the difference between men's and women's markets, um, and try to get you guys introduced to a market that I think is very ripe to be exploited and kind of get you guys uh, into betting tennis. Um, A lot of stuff is overnight for all you degenerates out there. Uh, But other than that, um, it's a great opportunity to make money. So I hope you enjoy the interview with the White Whale. And now joining me on the Inside Vegas podcast is the one and only white whale can be found on twitter at Whale capper um done a ton of great work in the space he was one of the first people that we kind of did the uh social media player profile with on sports gambling podcast and in all honesty he's one of the sharpest tennis minds that i know i mean there's so many tournaments that go on day in day out uh or weekend wake week out rather not to mention the grand slam titles and he's bending every single one of them non-stop and um so that's kind of why i wanted to bring him on specifically for this kind of miniseries introduction into kind of niche markets and things that aren't baseball, basketball, football, but you know, wanted to get in, into kind of the weeds of, of some markets that people have proven to find profitable, but that they're, for whatever reason, there's not a ton of casual fan interest. So uh, without, without any further ado, how are you, my friend? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk some tennis. And that's the thing, right? It's you're, that's you're one of the only people I know that that actually not only people, but you're one of a few that actually enjoys tennis. So um before we break that down, let's just kind of give a little <laughs> a little introduction to how you kind of broke into the tennis market and began betting tennis kind of day to day.
1: Sure. So um, I've bet I bet tennis uh, slams for as long as I've been a sports better. So that goes back probably about ten years and um you know i was uh i was a country club kid growing up and played tennis and swam and so you know once i've you know got into the the betting sport you know you're in the middle of the summer and the wimbledon's on and i'm like oh this is great you roll out of bed watch wimbledon all morning and i was like man i i could they could handicap this i like this and uh so i got into um got into betting tennis that way kind of figured my way around like okay, money lines are kind of the most common lines you can find. And then there's other markets like handicap on games or sets, or, uh, you can bet total over under on games and, and sets. And so it's kind of explored the, uh, the marketplace, uh, through betting, uh, some of the summer slams. Um, and then, uh, you know, it, it's like, uh, I got, really serious into sports betting in general, uh, handful, you know, probably about like three years ago. And, um, you know, I was kind of figuring my way around, well, what am I going to do when the NFL is not going on? Cause the NFL is really my, my passion for sports betting, mm-hmm. you know, is, is, is birthed out of the NFL. Um, and you know, there's what, seven, eight months of the season where we don't have anything to bet on when it comes to football. Um, and so I kind of was, was, I tried my hand in some soccer. I did not do well at that. Yeah. Join the club. Uh, co- college basketball is very, very tough for me for whatever reason. I just can't keep up with all the moving parts. Um, I've started, uh, I've started kind of finding my, my, uh, feet in the uh, NBA. I've always done the NBA playoffs pretty well, but. Uh, this year for the first season, I'm looking at positive units on uh, NBA handicapping. Uh, and then I stumbled into tennis, and I was like, you know what? Like, I, I put together um, a model for the Australian Open you know, back in 2016, I want to say. Um, it was my first time modeling tennis. And I was like, man, there is no databases around. Like, there is, like, how do you get database or information or any of this stuff? And it was a struggle because you go to, like, you know, ATP.com, which is ATP is the governing body of the men's side of the tour. And you, like, go to their stats page and, like, they have one stat. It's like most aces ever. And it's like, this isn't helpful. (laughs) Like, what am I supposed to do with this? And so you kind of realize, like, oh, man, like, this is a totally untapped like market like there's you know there's there's not there's nothing you know big out there um i sense have found great databases that are way off the radar um but you know i kind of realized at that point like you know if it's this hard to find data to handicap like these markets must have lots of vulnerabilities like there must be some ways to really make money doing this and i looked at the calendar and i was like you know what like the season starts as nfl is winding down Uh, the kind of the best tournaments of the season are all throughout the summer when there's no NBA, uh, and, uh, the season kind of winds down, at least for me, it winds down with the U S open, which is the last slam of the season around labor day, uh, which, you know, gives, you know, makes way perfectly for the NFL seasons to start. And I was like, okay, this is, this could work. And so I kind of really put my time and effort back in 2016 into developing a model that I could use to, uh, handicap matches on the men's side. I uh, had some great great success. You know, I actually I had mixed success in 2016, but I had a couple hot couple heaters and I was like this is really has potential. Uh, And then 2017, I was like, okay, I sat down in January. I looked at the whole calendar and I was like, okay, I'm going to focus on, you know, one tournament a week all throughout the whole season. So I laid out like 40 tournaments. I was going to handicap them all. And I was like, okay, if I focus on one tournament, I can kind of watch some of the tennis results. You can get a feel for like the player's form and, you know, kind of use your eyeballs to go along with what I had from my numerical model. Um, And, uh, you know, 2017 just had, awesome success. I think I only had like maybe three or four out of the 25 tournaments I handicapped where I didn't make money. So I was pretty stoked. And I was like, this is, and like along the way, like you kind of figure out like this is degenerate delight. Man.
0: <laughs> it's a lot like, of overnight there, waking caches, right?
1: There's a lot of overnight waking cash. There's a lot of, there's betting every day. Uh, there's a lot of, you I know, mean, when it's not overnight, it's in like during the daytime when there's no, you know, us sports live, um yeah and so i was like you know what i can find you know a handful of plays every day uh and uh you know work my way through these tournaments kind of kind of learn along the way and um yeah so last season was a tremendous success this season so far i'm off to a lovely start thanks to a really strong australian open uh and uh yeah it's uh, it's been a ton of fun and it is the perfect kind of example of a niche market you know you find a sport you love and love to handicap and there's not a lot of you know not a lot of whales pardon the pun uh in the uh in the marketplace moving lines out of uh, out of reach where you can find an edge and uh you know you can you can make some money and and, and uh and enjoy enjoy the sport even more
0: and there's so much to dive into pardon that pun for you with your deep dive podcast, <laughs> but it was, there's so much to get into with what you just said there. And I don't even know really where to start, but the, but what I kind of, the question I always get asked, asked to kind of explain is, you know, my kind of, my thing has always been UFC and it's, you know, how can you handicap that? And to me, it's, it's very simple because styles will always make fights, right? So you can always kind of, you know, that can always be sort of in the back of your mind when you're trying to handicap this. I mean, I love sports and betting on sports that is, you know, somewhat one-on-one just because. I'm somebody that likes to eliminate variance. That's why I, I take advantage of the first five market or the first inning market, even uh, within baseball. Or I bet you know more totals than I do or money line stuff uh, in the NFL just because I like to eliminate variance and try to make life as simple as I can. And, and tennis is obviously just like that. Um, so is there is is handicapping? You know each tennis. I mean I know you said that you started off with kind of a model type algorithm thing, but is there you know a film study? Is that is it more recent form for each uh, player or how do you kind of go about? Starting to even handicap, you know, two people hitting a ball back and forth?
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's a fair question. And, uh, I had to be completely uh, honest and cards on the table. Um, I just Googled like, you know, how how do you build a tennis model? (laughs) And like, there was a bunch of people who had kind of gone this way before me and they were like, okay, well, uh, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll start with, um, you know, past results. Like how good is this tennis player against an average player? Right, right. Like, what does his career statistics tell you? Like, this guy has, you know, is is he, you know, winning eighty percent of his matches, uh, or is he winning twenty percent of his matches? And you can kind of, you know, just start with just career, like win loss, is a great starting point. Um, I like to kind of break out my win loss into time periods. So, like. I'm looking not just at their whole career because you could be, you know, a guy could be at the very tail end of his career. It could be winding down and you don't want to necessarily assume like, you know, hey, well, he went, you know, uh, 50 and three back in two, you know, 2008. Like, you don't want to be counting that very highly in your model, you know, but so basically, basically kind of look at, OK, well, how's he done in the last year? Well, how's he done in the in last two years? Well, how's he done in his career? And you can kind of give those things separate weights and kind of say, okay, well, this is a reasonable score then for like how good this guy is just against an average player right now. Right. Yep. And then from there, you get a jumping off point to start to kind of put knobs and dials on there to account for various factors that you think are important. The most obvious starting place for tennis is the surface right? Not all tennis matches are played on, you know, like the tennis you may have played growing up as a kid on like a, you know, green hard court. Um, you know, every single surface that they play on throughout the course of the tour has different characteristics that you want to account for. Um, and there's kind of these broad categories like, you know, the French open is played on clay, uh, and the U S open and the Australian open are played on hard court. Uh, and, um, and Wimbledon is played on grass. And so you can kind of then break out players' past performances on each uh, surface and use that to kind of take your you know your score of them to another level for the uh, for the surface of the match that they're playing. Do on, you right?
0: handicap not to cut you off, but do you handicap sure. certain players on each different surface more or do you kind of look at how, you know, uh, I don't want to say how a ball bounces because that sounds so rudimentary, but, you, you know, like, do you, calc- not calculate, I mean, you know, kind of what the, how to word this, but do you, uh, you know, how a, a tennis ball bounces on clay versus how it bounces on grass or a hard surface? Like, do you, do, is it more one-on-one how the player um, performs on each surface or is it how the surface treats people in general? I guess is how I wanted to word that.
1: It, yeah, it they go exact, they go hand-in-hand. Okay. Like, um, uh, they go hand in hand because, and you can, you can use past performance on a given surface as a good indicator of how well they they will do going forward on that surface. Um, but it's almost 100% because of the things you mentioned, like how does the ball bounce off of that surface? Um, does the, does the surface itself take speed off the ball? Uh, and in that, in that case, you know, that, that plays into, Okay. Clay is the best example. We're about to enter the, uh, what's, uh, called in the handicapping circles in circles or tennis circles, I guess, uh, the clay season. Um, we've had a couple of, uh, we've had a major and a couple of masters on hard court. Uh, once April rolls around, uh, the tour moves to Europe primarily. Uh, And we have, like, a bunch of really high-profile clay tournaments all leading up to the French Open. Um, Monte Carlo starts next week. That's a Masters 1000, so that's, like, worth a ton of money and a ton of points. Um, And uh, after that, you have tournaments in Barcelona, Madrid, Rome, um, and, and then... That leads into. There's a couple of smaller ones too, like Munich has a tournament, and uh, um, I'm forgetting a couple more. But uh, that leads into uh, Roland Garros in Paris uh, at the end of May. And um, the players who typically do well on clay. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting, they know like that's that part of the season is where they're going to like rack up points, mm-hmm. right? They're going to rack up wins. They're going to make their money so that they can survive as a professional tennis player all during that time window and so they like train themselves physically to peak during that time window right and so um so, so guys because that are, they like, know that they perform good, so
0: well on a, a specific surface when that when that type right. of surface is coming up heavy that's when they kind of go all in and everything
1: That's right. They'll, they'll play more tournaments. They'll like, they'll, they'll sandbag other tournaments, other times of the year so that they're not like incurring like miles and getting themselves tired. They'll, they'll try to, and then, and then they'll just kind of try to peak physically and have their game peaking as they get into that time of year uh, so that they can get as many wins and make as much money. And, and uh, cause that's their best chance. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's their best chance for these clay players at least is because they don't necessarily have very strong service game. Right. And, uh, and the clay and the speed of the ball coming off of the clay neutralizes big serves, right? So it kind of brings everybody to a common level. If you don't have a banging serve, and you're playing on clay court, you're not necessarily at a disadvantage uh, to a guy who's like 6'10", who can serve the ball you know, 150 miles an hour. So, so just kind of that neutralizing factor gives these players um, a better chance. Uh, the ball coming off slower means you can get to a lot more balls too, right? Like you're going to, there's not a lot, it's not as easy to hit a winner on clay
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: just because it's coming off slower so a guy can run and get to it. That kind of gives an advantage to the smaller players who are more who have better mobility, right? Like they can run around the court, you know, and defend and return and you have longer rallies and, you know, some players can handle long rallies. Like they're just physically fit, like to run a marathon. Whereas other guys are more like sprinters and like you get like 10 shots into a rally and they're gassed. Uh, And then a smaller guy who's been, you know, who's having no problems can put him away just because, you know, he's he's too tired to to get to, uh, um, you know, a short ball or to the opposite side of the court. And so it's it's uh, just the speed of the court kind of controls all of that. Right. And it's so it's it's crazy to the tune of a guy who is the greatest tennis player of all time, Roger Federer. Literally will not play clay this year. He did not play clay last year Not because he was hurt, but because he was just like I don't have the game for this and I have a limited number of matches left I'm not gonna waste my time playing clay because I just know that I don't have a chance at winning these tournaments uh, And I'm not gonna put those miles on and so he's basically just Kind of put himself on the shelf until grass season rolls around in July or June and, um, you know, he's kind of seated way to, uh, Rafa Nadal, who's, uh, you know, the greatest clay court player of all time. And, um, yeah, so it's kind of fascinating. And, um, I guess the one other thing I'll mention is a lot of it also kind of depends like how you were brought up, right? Like if you were born in like Spain or Southern France or other parts of Europe where they play predominantly on clay, like It's your that's your home turf, right? Like you feel at home on that surface. You understand how, you know how to construct points better, how to win rallies, and how to, you know how to win matches uh, on that surface more so than you would on uh, on a hard court or a grass court. And so, you know, it's it all those kind of things play play into why a guy is good on clay, uh, and you can tease that out of their records. Pretty pretty, even if you don't know tennis, even if you've never heard of. You know, the fifth, the 30th ranked player in the world, you've never heard his name. You can still kind of tease out who's good on clay if you have a good database and you start kind of building a model, kind of trying to weight that aspect of past results and, and in turn in determining who's good on and who's going to be good in a certain match.
0: And you being such a, an algorithm model guy is one of the things that, that I've always admired because to me, I can't use a model or an algorithm because I need to give myself kind of the eye test when I'm watching something, right? I need to, you know, it, because if the model tells me one thing, And I, you know, really feel strongly about something from a subjective standpoint and, you know, whichever side wins, I'm going to feel awful that I didn't just trust the model or I didn't, you know, kind of go with my gut in any situation. So I think that you have to make it a constant long game, which can be so difficult for people to do to kind of take their own bias out of it and just kind of run with the model. Is there any... I don't want to say, I mean, have you ever, have you dealt with, um, you know, kind of a, a time where you were like, you know, I don't want to trust the model here, but I, I have to, or do you kind of go back and forth being, you know, such a model driven, uh, handicapper? Yeah.
1: It's taken me years to kind of get to the place where I know what to do with model result. If that makes sense. Um, the first Probably six, seven years, I was sports betting. I was not using a model. I was primarily betting with my gut. I was trying to pick up tips on uh, situational handicapping angles, things like that, because I was like, this is how it, this is how you win long term. Uh, and then out of the blue, I was like, oh, I'm going to try to build a model for the NFL one time. I did it, I back tested it. The results I was looking at were like, This is ridiculous. Like I've got I figured out. The <laughs> you got the holy bonus. grail to like, gambling, right? Shit. Yeah. I was like, This is crazy. Like this is so I, I'm never gonna lose anymore ever again. You know, and you crank it forward and you're like, wait a second, my back tested results, I was like eleven and four every week. I just got it like a eight and seven this week. Like what the hell happened, you know? And you don't kind of realize that there are like, there are aspects when you're backtesting and stuff like that. that the market kind of corrects like, itself and you're you, you, not accounting yeah, for the that market, during backtesting. You, uh, oh, 100%. And um, and you're using data that is influenced by the performances that you're backtesting against. So it's like, yeah, Patriots are 18 and 0 and you use their metrics from that season and backtest and it tells you to bet the Patriots every time. Right? Of course. It's like, yeah, duh. yeah, of course. And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it, it it there are those kind of things kind of you learn the hard way early, like, okay, well, the model itself may may give you an edge. One, you don't have to bet every single edge. And two, not all edges are created equal. And three, you know, sometimes you think you have an edge from the model, but you actually don't because there are other factors you haven't accounted for, like situational factors or injuries or things like that that aren't baked into the numbers and you gotta make those adjustments yourself. And so I kind of went through the process of like, okay, well now I have a model. I'm just going to bet it blindly when I have an edge. I'm just going to use Kelly criteria and I have this numerical edge in here. Here we go. Let's, let's just, let's just, you know, we'll, we'll go long game here and we'll just take our lumps and, and, um, I actually did this with tennis and I was like, okay, well, you know, cause the, cause I'll, and I'll just kind of spill some of the, the beans here a little bit <laughs> with, when you run a tennis model, you almost, if you're doing it right, you're almost certainly are going to be identifying an edge on underdogs, like. All the time, right? Like for whatever reason, the market is always tilted toward the favorites in tennis. And you run a model, and you're like, okay, I need to be betting seven of the eight underdogs today. <laughs> and then, because well, so, you only have to hit three or
0: you know two or three out of <laughs> right, them. You only have to enough. hit
1: two or three, yeah, right. And uh, but like you know, you're betting you know plus three hundred, plus five hundred underdogs, and like yeah, you only expect those to hit you know you know, one out of four, one out of five times. And it's like, you know, so you, you take a lot of lumps. <laughs> if you're, you're just betting, you know, you're like, I have a 2% edge on these long shots and, you know, you could go weeks and weeks and weeks where there's just not as many upsets because for whatever reason, like that, you know, like the, you know, there's a, and there's a lot of factors. I have a lot of theories and situational factors in tennis. Um, you know, because it depends on, you know, how important the match is for certain players and, you know, how much money is in, at stake and things like that all kind of play into whether or not there'll be an upset. Um, and, you know, the, you know if you're just betting the model blindly, you know, you're going to miss a lot of that, a lot of that stuff, and you're going to take a lot of lumps. And I definitely went through periods of time where I was flat betting, you know, I was where I was Kelly betting the model results and just kind of like, wow, this is brutal. Some weeks you were just <laughs> so in the red, you can't believe it. And other weeks you're doing great. And people, you know, and I, and I got unlucky, I think in a, in a little regard in that of one of the first weeks I just was just like, okay, I'm going to do this. Uh, it was the real open in 2016 in February. It was right after the super bowl and I was bored and I had nothing else to bet on. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to blind bet the model. And for whatever reason, like that was just one of like the most. Like upset filled tournaments of all time. And like the, in the semifinals, like. There was, you know, Pablo Cuevas, this unknown Uruguayan guy, upset Rafa Nadal. And on the other side, this Argentinian grinder, Guido Pella, Pella upset uh, this kind of well-known, uh, you know, Clay clay Court uh, guy with 500 wins to his name. And it's just like, you know, I hit, I hit these, like, plus 500s, and I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, again, like, I got it all figured out. Like, this yep. is so easy. Uh, and then, like three weeks go by and like not a single underdog hits. And I'm just like, <laughs> I've completely given it all back. And then some, and I was just like, okay, I gotta, gotta come up with a new way to do this. Um, and that's kind of, that's kind of similar to all my kind of stories, I guess, about using numerical models and sports betting is that part one is build a model and get a baseline result. And like, it's going to be a good starting point. But then part two is like, critically evaluate those results and try to find reasons for and against actually backing those because, you know, sometimes there's an edge that's born out of the line is wrong and the public is wrong. And your model is telling you, you have an edge and that, and that's correct. But other times there's an edge. And it's because there's something you don't know that other people know, uh, that the line has moved in the right direction. And you know, that, that edge is going to lead you astray. And so you kind of, you kind of learn, the hard way more or less <laughs> that, uh, you can't just blind bet a model. You have to incorporate, um, you know, you have to incorporate judgment at some level and, you know, to your first point about like, okay, you want to kind of, if, you know, you have a gut feeling about something and the model is telling you the other, the other way, like you do your homework and try to see, okay, well, do I need to, you know, what adjustments do I need to build in here to account for what my I feeling in my gut? And, like, if you're feeling something in your gut and you make adjustments that are reasonable and your model is still, like, this is still not the right side, like, chances are it's not the right side. <laughs> and you're going to save yourself some money and the model is going to save you from making a bad bet, you know, on that basis. And then other times, you know, it's, you know, if you make the right adjustments, you could confirm exactly what you're thinking in your gut. And you can, you you know, the, the baseline model might say, you know, bet portland tonight and you make the right adjustments for injuries and and rest and things like that and it's like oh no no you should be betting utah you know and it's like okay well bet utah and then sure enough that ends up being the right side those kind of things happen on the regular using analytic models and you know there's there's really no absolute right way to use them um but you can definitely get into some tight spots if you're just kind of blindly (laughs) blindly betting them uh, without kind of incorporating you know judgment in my opinion,
0: absolutely, and I'm glad that you brought up a couple couple more great points that are that are fantastic segues and and for somebody that I mean I have never bet tennis you know more than what i would call a degenerate steak or, or or the grand slams or you know specific um kind of have fun if they're overnight um and i you know don't have anything to stay up and do um but but to do this you know kind of week in week out month in month out during this season is is absolutely awesome um to see someone that can do this and do this profession or not professionally but just do this so successfully um you know over the long haul, haul. and you know nobody has gotten killed betting you know three minus 600, 700 favorites more than me. I'm here to tell you that right now, as we've always talked behind the scenes and, and yeah, you've sure. seen, you've seen it happen. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where I, th- I, you know, I always feel that when, when these upset happens, they happen in these, you know, like you've talked about these four five, six, seven, you know, in a row in the same tournament. And then when the chalk comes in, the chalk comes in. And I always seem to find myself on on kind of the wrong, <laughs> wrong end of that, no matter what I do. And then I get frustrated and the, the chalk hits and it, you know, you would think to yourself, okay, you know, similar to the NCAA tournament, if you parlayed, you know, this year, obviously notwithstanding, but, you know, every number one seed over the past, you know, against the 16 seed, uh, you know, over the past four years, you know, maybe you've made even money if you parlayed those four matchups every single year. And you can do that almost, you know, I would say, are well, you once a month with the uh, tennis tournaments and it just doesn't work out the same way. You know, there's there's so many things that go into it when people retire and this and that. And that's what I wanted to kind of bring oh, yeah. to you is match in game fixing because this is one of the biggest black <laughs> eyes on a sport that that I've seen. Yeah. And, you know, of course, when... When I've bet a a minus four hundred in a couple parlays and stuff like that, and they lose, that's my first instinct is to say it's a conspiracy and that the world is against me and it wasn't my fault. But is that true? Is it not true? Is there has there things that you've kind of found out in terms of people you know tanking tournaments to get ready for the next one? There's not a lot of money on the line because each tournament and based on how prestigious that tournament is will dictate kind of what the purse is, for lack of a better word. If if I kind of understand the tennis you know breakdown and payouts uh, correctly, but this is absolutely there's, you know, it's, it's been talked about to, you know, it's a known fact that this is maybe outside of, of boxing and, you know, mixed martial arts fights. One of the biggest problems with tennis is match fixing. Um, so have oh, you yeah. kind of encountered that or kind of, how do you handle that type of thing?
1: I, um, it, it is, I don't, I, it's impossible for me to really tell you how common it is other than to say it it absolutely happen. Um, I don't think it's as prevalent as you would get the sense if you follow a certain segment of the gambling community because they like to blame losses on things like match-fixing when it could right. be all sorts of things. All <laughs> It just could be randomness. Um, that said, there are certain players who I have on a list who I don't bet because I suspect that in the past they've fixed matches. Um, and there are certain tournaments that I don't bet because... Those are the types of tournaments where the stakes are so low for the good players that they are there to pick up their round one check and get out of there, get out of touch. Uh, right now is a great example. There is one going on now, uh, in, there is a, an ATP tournament in Marrakech, Morocco. Uh, and last year, um, this wasn't an, ex- an example of a fix, but people probably thought it was, uh, last year, um, The number one seed was Grigor Dimitrov. He's a Bulgarian guy, top 10 player in the world, top 10, not just in ranking, but like actually in skill and deserves to be top 10 player in the world. He was the class of the field. It wasn't even close. This tournament was worth 250 ranking points if you won outright, which is very small. Like by comparison, um... If you win like Indian Wells or Miami, which are just they just the two biggest um, non-majors that just got completed here in the United States, you get a thousand points. So this one, even if you win it all, you get only a quarter of the points that you would get from a bigger tournament like Miami. Um, and the purse itself is probably even less than a quarter of what the purses are for some of the bigger tournaments. So the pay the payday really was not there. And um, you know this guy gets run uh by a much lesser player like I want to say he was this mi- was the was last time I
0: bet tennis by the way it's it we talked a minus, about this.
1: This guy was a minus five hundred favorite. You looked at the you you know I, I rolled out of bed, I looked at the line, I was like, Jesus Christ, minus five hundred like this guy is classes better than his opponent. Like there is no excuse for the line to be this low. Like something's up (laughs) and you know and you think okay well maybe he's like word is out he's fixed it or whatever and you know like all right well i'm staying away and sure enough he loses and you look at and you're like man did he fix the match and then like later on like that day it kind of trickles out like oh he made a deal to play an exhibition match in monte carlo before the monte carlo open starts he's going to play that match on Saturday when he would be in the semifinals of the Morocco open. And so, you know, he, he's thinking like, I don't really give a fuck. Like I'm, I'm not sticking around long on this tournament anyway. So, you know, whoever beats me, beats me, I don't care. And so he just, you know, the, the writing was on the wall. Like if the going got tough, he was getting out of Dodge and sure enough, he drops a set on a tiebreaker or whatever. And he's like, all right, I quit. I'm out. And so that kind of attitude and motivational, you know, angle matters a lot when you see top players in these small tournaments like they just don't they you know they're they the likelihood that something weird happens and they give up and head on to their next destination take their check with them that kind of stuff happens a lot and it's almost impossible to kind of find out that stuff beforehand because usually you know something trickle out like you know somebody will find out from you know, Dimitrov's, uh, you know, social media manager, or whatever, like, oh yeah, she bought him a plane ticket to Monte Carlo. Why is he going to Monte Carlo? Oh, he's got a, you know, an exhibition match lined up that he's going to get paid a hundred thousand dollars to play on Saturday. Like, okay, that makes sense. Now it all adds up. And you know, those things are impossible to figure out, but thankfully like tennis has a really, really, really strong like social media fandom side to it. And You can kind of just comb a handful of accounts on Twitter and learn a ton about what the players are doing outside of the court. Um, Way more so than you can get out of NFL players. Way more than than you can get from college basketball. NBA is pretty similar. Like If you're you're following NBA Twitter, you know a lot about what the players are doing off the court. Um, And tennis Twitter is kind of the same. Like yeah, you can find out a lot of that information.
0: Inside Vegas is presented by MyBookie.ag. MyBookie.ag is the official online sportsbook of the Inside Vegas podcast, as well as the Sports Gambling Podcast Network. Use promo code SGP fifty to receive a fifty percent deposit bonus today. Inside Vegas is also brought to you by Odd Shark. Odd Shark has the latest betting trends available, as well as betting picks from their supercomputer. Check out all of their quality content and betting trends at OddShark.com. That's so. That's I, I, this is why we we kind of see eye to eye in how we bet tennis and how I bet UFC because when you bet a sport that is one-on-one, you can get into a person's life very easy. And one oh, of yeah. the the best things to do for UFC handicapping is to go and follow and find these fighters' Instagram posts uh, pages and see how are they looking because they're not shy about posting photos with not a lot of clothes on you know be it a a male or female and you know what I mean that's not to say you're creeping one way or another that's to see what kind of shape these people are in Um, what gym they're training at and because people switch gyms all the time within UFC and so you can gain so much you know I don't even want to call it inside info uh, because it's available but you just have to be kind of willing to put in the work Um, so I'm kind of you know again this this goes back to you know betting a single person versus betting a team and kind of taking out variants. And there's there's so many parallels when you talk about, you know, kind of home court and what people are good at. And this will... You know, to make a parallel to kind of football, this is betting. You know, a team like the Rams. You know, when they were the greatest show on turf. You know, being are they on turf or are they not? Atlanta has been, you know, over and over a great example of this, where they're on turf or or they're not. And you know, if they're in Chicago, Chicago Bears are notorious for kind of keeping the grass long and you know, it's kind of trying to slow things down. The Saints is another example. Um, These dome teams that have to go outside and there's a reason that they're so much better is because they're built for their home, um, you know, stadium. Or or be it as it may, you know, whatever the situation may be, they kind of tailor their roster to what, you know, they're going to be playing in eight games a year. Um, Of course, you know, UFC, the environment is always the same, you know, obviously based on, you know, judging and, and where an event is being held is different, but the surface is all the same. So that's why to me, you know, tennis is individual, but it also has a lot of parallels to kind of team sports and, and because the surface can be so drastically different from one player to a next. But with that, do you bet, you know, more future stuff and then kind of hedge against yourself or let things ride? Or do you bet kind of more day to day matchup stuff or, or kind of how do you kind of attack that market in the futures market, just kind of shifting the gear towards the market side of tennis rather than, you know, the philosophy of how you handicap it?
1: Yeah, so futures. I really, uh, I really tread lightly on futures unless I'm uh, betting a um, uh, a grand slam. Um, week in, week out, there are future markets that open up for um, the smaller tournaments, and they are notoriously tough to make money on. Um, the, uh, the The field, the field, and it all has all comes down to how big the field is. 128 players will, will, uh, will be in the field in the French Open. Uh, that right there creates kind of certain tiers where you can find value for guys to go a certain distance into the tournament. So you can do more than just, okay, well, I think this guy's going to win. I'm going to bet that and then I'm done, right? Like it's more like the NCAA tournament, right? Where you have 68 teams to choose from uh, and you can kind of... Um, as long as they make it to a certain round, you know, you're going to be able to extract some value out of that play. Right. right. It's, yep. it's kind of, that's the same kind of philosophy you can take into a major, um, and, or a slam. And, um, with the smaller tournaments, with the smaller fields, uh, they basically like, if you're betting a future on a guy, like they got to win <laughs> or else, you know, that's a loss. Right. That's a loss unit. Um, there are a handful of exceptions. Um, there are, Guy, you can and you they they stick out like a sore thumb, right? Like like last year on the clay swing, um, Rafa Nadal was going for his tenth ever title at Monte Carlo, his tenth ever title at Barcelona, his fifth ever title at um, uh, at Madrid, and his tenth ever title in the French Open. He was at nine nine four nine, and he had a whole advertising campaign worked out with Nike for La Decima. He was going to win his tenth French Open. Like you, if you watched him play two matches at Monte Carlo and you're like, Oh my God, he is going to run everyone off the surface for all of these tournaments. And the odds never even really reflected it, even into French open and rolling Garros where you could get plus money odds for him starting out the tournament. And lo and behold, he walks into rolling Garros he wins his 10th French open title without dropping a set. So that was like a stress, you know, stress-free uh, future to have in your pocket. Um, another good example last year, I had a great winner on Alexander Zverev, Sasha, Sasha Zverev winning the Munich open. Um, he was in Germany. He was kind of, he had proven himself earlier in the season that he could, you know, he could win titles. Um, and you know, he was looking good on clay and she think, you know, you see it all on paper, like, Oh wow, he's like the best player in this tournament. Oh, he's in his home country. Oh, he's trying to make a name for himself in the, on tour and collect titles. Right. Oh, he's eight to eight to one to win this. Like, that's crazy. (laughs) You know, like it's an easy swing. Like, you know, you just, you just know that uh, he's going to, you know, he's when, you know, and you can kind of, at least my, my week of handicapping a tournament starts with kind of looking at the field, looking at the draw and trying to put players in different categories and, Munich was a great example last year, where you looked at the draw and you were like, "Oh man, Zverev thinks he's he's here to win this, and he's you know his mindset coming into this tournament is I'm going to win this tournament." And when that's your mindset, you tend to try to either get your matches, your early in the week matches done without you know firing all your bullets, and you want to kind of build into your week and get stronger and stronger as you get to each level, so you can kind of you know, have the mental edge over your opponents because they're like, holy shit, did you see what he did to this guy last week? Oh, he's, he's peaking, he's rising. Oh, he's going to win this tournament. And uh, and you can kind of put players into those categories as you start handicapping a tournament in the week. And, uh, you know, and, and if you do that and you have a handful, a couple, you know, a couple guys that you have circled in kind of category one, like these guys are here to win this title. Right. Uh, and you look at their prices and they're in the 10 to one range, like by all means, put a future down on them. And um, and so that's kind of that's kind of the two approaches I use. Either I'm trying to extract value and make the slams more fun, uh, or I literally see something that is just like a giant shiny silver dollar on the ground, you know, that you have to pick up <laughs> because it's just like this is you know this is the this is the um, you know a perfect situation. So uh, yes, yeah, so, so the
0: the longer you go in uh, each tournament, betting or. Um, for each tennis player is kind of the more, um, you know, quote-unquote, tennis ranking points that somebody gets. Um, so if somebody is, is up and coming, you know, they would obviously be fine with, you know, making it to you know making it two or three rounds, whatever, because they're going to kind of build their ranking and stuff like that.
1: Exactly, exactly. So you how does that, it.
0: yeah, so how you does that kind it. of, you know, I don't know to say how does that because you kind of answered it, but does that kind of play into, you know, what someone's expectation is into a tournament and know when to, you know, kind of hop off, um, knowing that they're satisfied with kind of how they've increased their ranking and stuff like that kind of day-to-day?
1: Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. There are, I mentioned different categories of guys going into a tournament. I like to categorize a handful of like young up and comers who have favorable draws where they can win a couple of early round matches, you know, and you, you, and those guys, you know, that they looked, they woke up or they got the draw, they looked at it and they were like, Ooh, I can win some, a couple rounds here. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, get, uh, get hundred, hundred points, put them in my pocket move my ranking up to where I don't have to play qualifiers You know, Mm -hmm. next week, like that—that's a huge thing. Because what's funny is on the ATP tour, if you are ranked between like, I'll say fifty and a hundred, right? You're one of the hundred best tennis players in the world at that time, but it is still is really tough. You'd maybe you don't have a very lucrative uh, sponsorship. You probably have to pay for a lot of your own travel, a lot of your own flights. You don't have like a huge team around wow, you of I had people no idea. who so are if, keeping you. If ATP
0: fit. invites you to a tournament and you're not, you know, the upper echelon, you have to pay yourself to actually physically fly there or go there. And oh, yes. are all, oh yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: Oh yeah. You're you're flying yourself there, you're paying for your hotel, you're paying for your, your coach. If you have a, if you can afford a coach, you're paying for your um you know, your physical therapist to come with you and your social media person, whatever. You know, you those your team is uh, your family you, all of those people are coming with you at your own expense and um and there is a le- there is a specific threshold where if you aren't ranked high enough and you want to play in just kind of a pretty good tournament like you might not be ranked high enough to get in without qualifying which means you have to win matches to get in to get a paycheck period because if you only play qualifying and you don't qualify for the main draw, you get nothing. <laughs> you get zero dollars and you get no points and you get no money. And so getting, you know, so so you'll see guys who, you know, come in and, um, you know, like a match will mean a more to them because they are on that bubble. And they have looked down their schedule and they're like, I entered all, you know, five tournaments this summer and I'm in the qualifying list for all of these tournaments because my ranking points aren't high enough. Like if I can eke out a couple wins here, bump my ranking point up 100 points, I'm, I'm going to get in. To these. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get a paycheck, you know, right. like I can I can afford to fly to, you know, Shanghai and St. Petersburg this fall. Right. Like they're they're literally like, OK, the rest of my calendar will be made if I can just like scratch out a couple points, you know, here and there. And there, you know, you gotta categorize guys that way and kind of understand their motivations before a tournament starts. I, f- I find, um, and it goes the other way too, where if you are ranked high enough to be in qualifying, or you know, to to avoid qualifying, you have to. And like, let's say, let's say you played in um, in Miami last year and you made it to the quarterfinals. It was a huge surprise run, and you got you know two hundred. 50 ranking points out of it or whatever that, whatever the point, whatever the 125 ranking points you got for making a surprise qualif- you know, quarterfinal in Miami, Miami rolls around and you got to you know get into all these tournaments throughout the course of the year because of those points. And you got a bunch of money and now Miami rolls back around. If you didn't like do well throughout the year and those points are coming due, like if you don't go back to the quarterfinals, you lose those points, you drop in ranking and all of a sudden you're back in the qualifying game. Like that's, that's miserable. Right. And, and, uh, there's a whole second tier of tournaments called challenger, which is below ATP. Um, and you know, guys have to make decisions like, okay, if I'm on the bubble, am I trying to go to qualify for these tournaments to get, uh, you know, ATP ranking points to get paychecks? Or am I better off going to these challenger level tournaments to try to, you know, get points that way? The paychecks are a lot lower and, you know, the competition is a lot is not as hard. Um, and so, you know, the, it makes it really tough on guys as they're going into the week. Like, oh, man, I made the semifinals by surprise here in this, you know, 500 level tournament last year. Like, I better defend those points or I'm screwed. I'm going to challenger level or I'm going to go into qualifying and I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be shit out of luck. And so, you know, the, there's ways to categorize guys like that as you go into the tournament. And I always kind of look, look at the draw, see who's, you know, see who's positioned well in terms of they've got, they've gotten matched up against players they can beat um, or players that they're of about equal strength to. And then look at last year's and just see who performed well at that venue, because there's, it gives you an indication of two things. One, they understand the venue well. The conditions there happen to work out for them, whether it be the court speed, whether it be like the altitude or the humidity or like, you know, it's at sea level or there's, you know, the, the, the air is drier. Like all those things kind of play into, you know, how guys play well at certain venues. And you can tease that out of just looking at past years' results. And if there's an added component of, well, this guy plays well at this venue and, oh, by the way, he's here trying to defend a great run he had last year. You know, those those types of motivational factors absolutely play into guys you want to look to back in the week. Um, and you know, it's in the back of your mind as you kind of run a model, like you put this stuff in there numerically just just because it needs to be accounted for when you're calculating. But then beyond that you look at the results of the model and you use those kind of those kind of angles to help strengthen your position in oh, okay, I'm definitely taking this guy on the money line versus, you know, okay, this underdog He's here defending points. He needs this win to stay off challenger. You know, may, it, that that can be the kind of thing that tips me from, I'm going to back the over in this match because I think he's going to give it everything he's got and he's probably going to come up short to, okay, I'm going to back the money line in this match because this guy is going to come out here and fire everything he's got. Right, Exactly. He's going to go balls to the
0: wall. And that's what, what I wanted to so, ask you is, do yeah. you play more spread um, or do you go for the whole thing in these plus four or 500 uh, money lines? Because when we talk about this market, you know, one thing that UFC again, and, and not to keep making this parallel to UFC, but there's this is it's kind of the only other one-on-one sport that you can bet, and outside of a decision handicap, which very, very, very few books offer, um, I think Five Dimes is maybe the only book that offers a points handicap, and again, that's only if it goes to the decision. Um, it's sometimes it's not an action bet. If, if it doesn't go to the decision, your bet will lose. Um, there's no Ooh. really, yeah, there's no really handicap to get in there. But tennis as a as a one-on-one bet, you can. You know, you know, handicap it um, and give that underdog, you know, plus however many, you know, sets or whatever. Do you kind of look to do pack underdogs in that situation or kind of go to the over uh, number of sets played or games played or kind of instead of, you know, backing a plus 600 underdog that you actually do think is live, but maybe not live enough to win it, is that a type of market that could be kind of exploited and explored for maybe someone who's not ready or doesn't have the bankroll to, you know, bet a three, $400 or plus three, $400 <laughs> underdog, you know, week in and week out, knowing that they're going to take some up and down and and take their lips, you know?
1: Yeah. No, that even, even I I would say I've evolved to the place where even I'm not interested in really going for the the big payday underdogs anymore. Um, I'm, I'm satisfied, uh, I'm satisfied taking the handicap or the over, um, as, and I kind of, I kind of approach my decision-making, um, systematically. Like I, like I said, for whatever reason, the market's, are what they are in tennis. The model is what it is. Maybe I have a, a, a bias model. I don't know. It's possible, but there always pops value on the underdog. Right. Mm-hmm. And not always like sometimes there's, I see value on the favorite, especially if it's like, you know, in, in, in slams in particular, like when it goes uh, all of these kind of in season tour events are best of three for the men. When mm-hmm. the slam scrolled around, it's best of five. And it's much, much, much more difficult to get an outright um, underdog winner in, uh, best of five than it is best of three, just because, you know, you're, you're taking some of the randomness out of it. You only got to win two sets. Like a lot of times in slams, underdog can win the first two sets and then lose the next three to the favorite. Like that happens all the time. Is that make um, live
0: betting a market that is, um, much more oh, profitable yeah. oh, in tennis than oh, any other sport? F-
1: oh, for sure. App Ab- for sure. There, um, there are people who are making their living live trading tennis. They are, they, they that are very good at it. Um, It's not a market that I'm ever going to get involved in because I don't have the... I don't go to the trouble of pulling together the database. You need to be good at that. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are people who are extremely good at that, and that's like their profession, for sure. Um, Trading tennis. but Trading tennis, 100%, yes. Um, And for for me, though, I'm almost exclusively betting pre-match. I try to put together a card that has an odd number of plays because that's just like a weird OCD thing, I guess. Uh, (laughs) So I'm looking like for five, for three or five or seven plays for the day in a given tournament. And I'm looking at my first thing I crank out my model. I look at my results and I'm like, okay, well, which of these underdogs or which of these, you know, which are their favorites or or actually I'll say, I look at any given match and I'm like, okay, is there value on the underdog based on my model? Yes, there is. Okay. Um, is there, what is the likelihood of this guy actually pulling this off? <laughs> right. Like mm-hmm. he is, does he have past head to head success against this guy? That's a huge factor in tennis. Like if a guy has beaten a guy before he knows something about a specific way to attack him. It always doesn't always come tr- come through that. You beat a guy over and over and over again. Sometimes it does. Um, but if he has a past head to head win and he's an underdog, that's the thing I love to, to know and love to love to have that in my back pocket. Um, if I'm looking at him, I'm like, okay, well, this guy is, you know, he's, he's going to give it everything he's got. He's going to probably get close. He may win a set. He may, you know, really push this to, you know, a tiebreaker to like, okay, I think he's going to get close, but I don't think he's going to get there rather than back him on the money line. I'm going to take the over, uh, because in my opinion, at least an overplay on games. Can you
0: just explain the is, over or, or yeah, kind sure. of the over under for anyone that's very new to, uh, betting tennis?
1: Sure, you can bet over sets or over games. I almost always bet over games, and that's just because the book I use um, offers the best lines on over games. And so basically you're saying, how many games will be played? One set, you win a set when you win six games by at least two, right? So you can win 6-0, 6-1, 6-2, 6-3, 6-4. If it's 6-5, you can't win. You have to win a seventh game, 7-5. or it goes 6 6 to a tiebreak and you win 7 6, mm-hmm. right? And your average set is usually about 6 4, right? So there's about 10 games per set, is kind of a good rule of thumb. Unless it's, and so if you're backing an over, you're basically saying, okay, this guy's going to keep it close. He's going to take this first set to 7 6, and then second set to 6 4, and there's going to be 23 games and the over-under's at 22. I think that we have a game edge here. I'm going to back the over. I don't think my guy can win a set, or I don't think he's going to win uh, in straight sets. I think he's going to lose, but it's going to be close. An over is a good look there. Right. Um, the handicap. If if I look at the game and I'm like, okay, I like this guy's chances a lot, but I don't want to back him on the money line. And the over is a good look. I'll think about it in terms of, okay, well, what if he wins the first set, right? Like, what if he's comes out like. a shot out of a cannon he just like works this other guy six three or six two in the first set is the other guy have a history of packing it in right and if the other guy has a history of packing it in then rather than back the over i'm gonna look for the handicap because then i'm like okay that that way you don't take a loss if your underdog who you've identified with value wins in straight sets right because there's maybe no worse feeling in tennis than you're like this guy's gonna win he's got a chance I don't have the guts to back him on the money line. So I'm going to take the over. And then sure enough, he comes out and just blows doors off. the favorite. (laughs) Great. I took a loss when I had the exact, exactly the right read on the match. Great. You know? And so I kind of try to protect myself that way. And I'll look for like, okay, well, is this, you know, is, is is there a chance that the guy, the favorite, if he loses the first set is going to pack it in. If I think that there is a chance of that, then I'll back the handicap instead of taking the over. And then, in certain cases where you're like, okay, I feel really good about this underdog, uh, not only is this a great situation for him, great surface, great head-to-head past results, or, like, the other guy is just ripe to be f- faded or whatever, then I'll back him on the money line. And I just try to, you know, do whatever I can to kind of construct a card that covers, you know, covers, covers um, you know, different angles of attack on a given match so that if it's, like, so that if, like, my read is like way off. Like I expected the conditions to be slow and wet and they were actually dry and fast. I don't just get word on the whole card. <laughs> right. So, and you know, so th- the, the general
0: kind of, rule yeah. of thumb between um, or amongst professionals is, um, you know, based on 100% of your bet, it's 70%, 70 to 80% uh, spread. And then that 10 to 20, maybe 5% on the money line. Do you subscribe to that too when you feel you have a live dog or do you go more money line heavy and then back the, um, the handicap? Or how do you kind of differentiate that uh, between your two bets? Uh,
1: I'd say I'm probably one quarter into backing. Um, one quarter into backing the the underdogs outright. Mm-hmm. Um, about a half into backing overs when I see value in the underdog, but I don't think he has I don't think he wins outright. Yep. Uh and then about a quarter in looking for plus games or um and I didn't mention even like sometimes you go through your whole exercise on a given match and you're like there's no way this guy's this underdog is winning like there's just there's too much stacked against him like this is too powerful an opponent on too good a surface and there, you know there's not enough value on the underdog so at that, that point i'm happy kind of constructing parlays with favorites um and that probably makes up the last quarter with you know some handicap plays in there too
0: right exactly um so i'm glad you touched on this error um you know I, I hate to liken this to the ncaa tournament and that that it happens you know once a month like that um but it's interesting that you know This would be, you know, Loyola playing these teams every single month, you know, if you kind of break that down to a person versus person instead of a a whole uh, program or team Um, or any, you know, any tournament situation it's you know UFC or or boxing or there's no tournaments um it's always just one person against one person and so for a sport to be kind of so tournament driven is is very interesting because you get those specific head-to-head matchups over and over again and of course you know there's that um kind of parallel to the NFL with being in your division and you can kind of look at the the regular season somewhat of our tournament uh you know layout be- being that they always play you know their division for half half the games but um do you see i want to transition this into kind of going away from the uh, you know day-to-day tournaments the small-time stuff into the majors and you touched on the fact that these have notoriously been kind of uh chalk driven or that the cream kind of rises to the top being is how oh, they're their biggest paydays they're the biggest um you know kind of qualifying ranking points Most, that are up yeah. for grab yep. uh, grabs especially um, and that's you know again the NCAA tournament happens once a year and you know <laughs> of course there's these great stories and that's what we were talking about of these people kind of you know getting you know I mean there's there's nobody that said layola had a bad tournament because they made it to the final four I mean that's a story in and of itself and so with it being kind of chalk heavier uh, during these these majors um, that are for a year or the Grand Slam uh, kind of tournaments are there do you look to kind of back chalk heavier and I know you said that your model will kind of always Pointing you towards underdogs, but how do you kind of deal with that knowing that these are kind of this is the best of the best playing on the the grandest stage of each event? You know,
1: oh for sure. Um, my general thought on slams is is very very similar to the NCAA tournament. You've drawn a very good parallel there without even betting a lot of tennis. I think you kind of have a a, a kind of um, I don't know. I, and, and you know, this goes for anyone who's listening to this podcast who might be interested. Like, oh, I'm going to give this a shot. It sounds fun. Um, it, the parallels are there with a lot of other sports. UFC, great example, because it's mano a mano. Tournament is a great example because the, the um, kind of the energy and the environment and the um, kind of the factors that make for an upset are all, all there. And when it comes to a slam for tennis, when, when, when you generally see outright upsets, they're early. They're in rounds one and two. And they're in rounds one and two because, um, a lot of times the underdog doesn't have anything to lose. A lot of times the favorite is not intending to pull out his best game on round one, right? They want to kind of ease into it, right? They don't want to like, you know, put all their cards on the table for their future opponents to see what they have, you know, in their arsenal in round one. And then, Oh, lo and behold, they're down 2-1 to some guy they didn't even expect was going to be, you know, a threat. And, you know, they're fighting for their life in the tournament. Oh, they, they got knocked out because the underdog got the momentum in the fourth set, which is all, you know, or they won a tie break because, you know, there's lots of coin flippy stuff about tennis. Um, and so, um, you know, when you see upsets in, in slams, they're usually in the earlier rounds. And then you get to the later rounds and all of a sudden it's like the usual suspects kind of are all showing up right yeah. and,
0: and that's how the NCAA well, tournament is you know you have yeah, Loyola I but say, at the end of the day say, yeah. it's it's always a Villanova it's always a Kansas yeah. it's always a Duke that the, cr- the cream rises to the top
1: yeah and factors that plant that are experience matters a lot in, sl- in, uh, in best of five tennis if you're not playing best of five all the time like you don't necessarily ha- know what it takes to win that particular match right and so you know you can be the better player on that day and still not win because you didn't realize like you needed to to like lower your level a little bit in the second set after you won the first to kind of save a little gas for sets three and four right like those kind of things you learn over time as you play best of five and play at the highest level um and then when they throw you from the outer courts where there's like a handful of people watching onto the main stage the nerves are just bananas and you can be playing the best tennis of your life and then you wake up one day and like all of the freaking you know serbian media is in your face asking you questions about your performance and you're like what is going on and you walk out and there's 100 you know and there's you know there's there's 100 tv cameras and 15,000 people watching you play and you're like you don't perform as well. Like that, type, that type of stuff happens on the regular, and so you get to rounds, you know, four or five, you know, round four, quarterfinals, semifinals, and um, you see much, many, many fewer upsets. That doesn't mean that there's not opportunities to, to make money um, and bet. You know, bet with the same kind of philosophy that you would use otherwise. Um, you know, over still hit. You can. You know, a lot of times in in those sort of um, those sort of matches they'll be, you know, they'll, they'll be, the favorites will be really juicy and even money line parlays, you know, still might be tough to swallow in terms of how much juice you're laying. Um, but don't talk to you me know, about money line parlays <laughs> or favorites. And this, buddy. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but you can still, you know, you can find, okay, well, this underdog, you know, he's, he's got the chops. He's been in this stage before he's not going to lose his cool. He can win a set. Yep. Right. And maybe you're back over three and a half sets, basically just like you're backing on the underdog not to get, why? It's so
0: funny right? to me because path <laughs> path to victory is such a huge thing when it's one on one um you know when it's one person oh, versus one person sure. path to victory is is kind of everything and so it's fascinating to me that tennis the path to victory for an underdog is always the over, and not even to the fact that they're going to win. Um, you know, just come out and dominate in straight sets. But if an underdog is going to hang around and make himself a you know a live underdog, it's going to go over. So to me, that's that's kind of fascinating in that the market is <laughs> is kind of cut and dry as to the path to victory for a um, an underdog. Do you find that you know? the Again, it's so different because, again, I'm so used to handicapping UFC in that when a path to victory, it could be he's a fantastic submission artist, which could lend itself to um, an under or, you know, he's super durable, but he has no chin, which could lend himself or I'm sorry, he's super durable, has a great chin, but he can't defend a submission. So the under is still live there. So to me, it's fascinating that for every single underdog in tennis, (laughs) as long as they make it kind of an event or make it a match, um, it's going to go over. That's, That's absolutely kind of. I think that that's right for the exploiting, for lack of a better term.
1: I agree. Yeah, hundred percent. And I mean, um, when you when you bet an over, uh, and you're watching live, um, the best feeling in the world is the underdog winning a very tight first set, because then you're like, this puppy is going the distance, mm-hmm. right? If, if you know you're getting three sets, that thing's going over. And if it's a tight, you know, if the underdog wins a tight first set. And and it and it's and it and it's an underdog that has kind of experience and has had upsets in the past. Then you know that they're kind of going to do what they can to save it up a little in yep. the second set, and they're going to concede the second set, knowing that uh, they have they'll have the upper hand in the third set when they're feeling uh, a little fresher and they're you know they've saved a little bit of their arsenal for uh, when the going gets uh, tough. And so you know you you watching you know the the two uh, the two best feelings when you're holding it over are. Um, wow. if it gets to a tire break in the first set, you're like, all right, I already got 13 wow. games home. Like this thing's in great shape. Um, wow. it's an even match and the chances are you're going to get, wow. you know, another long second set, even if the favorite wins, you're feeling pretty good about that. Yep. Uh, and then if the, if the underdog can win a tight first set, then you're, you're feeling even better. Cause you're like, this thing's going three, uh, put this thing
0: to bed. So. Wow. It's funny. Absolutely, man. It's it's crazy. Um, so I think we've kind of hit on everything, but one thing I do want to kind of touch on is the fact that we've only talked about uh, ATP in um, girls. We haven't even touched on oh, women's. Yeah, sure. And is that just because that's kind of where your model lends itself? Um, or is there, is that just kind of where you find value or is the women's sets or uh, women's tournaments and women's games completely different? Um, much in the way that, you know, one-on-one boxing women's or kickboxing or MMA or anything that is one-on-one, um, women is a completely different handicap than men.
1: Two, two factors. Um, actually, I I could probably talk about, about this for a while. Uh, the, but the first and most simple one is I do like to see it with my eyes know like the level of players form right like I don't need to see the whole match necessarily but I just need to see kind of key points in the match and kind of gauge uh, like in round because like it's a, you're, you're you're planning on betting a tournament and you're going to bet it seven days right and yeah. if you start watching on Monday like you're going to get a few you need to get a feel for what the conditions are like you need to get a feel for how the certain players are playing and like if you have a handful of players that you think are um, you know are threats to win You want to see them play round one and two, right? And uh, so I like to see it with my eyes. And there is a really, really, really useful tool for handicapping on the men's side. The ATP Tour has a product called Tennis TV that's like, and this is not an ad for them, I'm not affiliated with Tennis TV, (laughs) but it's like a $99 a year subscription. And you can watch, replay, fast forward, jump around to like uh, all 22 for NFL. Exactly. You nailed it. Exactly. It's like all 22 for NFL. That product exists for the men. It makes it much easier to put your eyes on what's going on on the men's side. And when I started doing this like daily, uh, that product didn't exist for the women. And mm-hmm. so it was, an easy, e- it was an easy call. Like I'm just – I can't see enough of the women's matches to really gauge, uh, you know, their form. So forget about it. I'm just going to – not even going to bother. Um, mm-hmm. Separately from that, when I have tried to kind of dip my toe in the water for the women – um, and just, and again, kind of going by the eye testing, there's lots and lots of women's tennis players in like the 30 to 100 range that I've never seen play, right? they like, I, if I haven't, if they haven't made it to like the, the, the middle later rounds of a, of a grand slam, I have no idea what their game is like or how, you know, how, if they're, if they're peaking, if they're fading or, you know, if they're, you know, where they are in their careers, I just don't know. Um, and so that makes it extremely tough to cap regularly and in, in early rounds, especially. Um, and so I just avoid women's tennis in the slams, even in the early rounds, just because I don't know enough about the players, mm-hmm. uh, to kind of use judgment beyond whatever the model would tell me. Um, and then the third factor is it feels more random in general. And I think this is, I, you know, I, I have probably some, um, I'm speculating a lot here. Um, but, the women's there's slightly less consistency for whatever reason yep. be it the kind of the demands of the tour and like whether it's tougher to go out and and re- repeatedly you know make deep runs in tournaments like f- there's much more of um of kind of a rotation you know among mm-hmm. the top tier women um where you know this this woman is peaking in this tournament this one and this one this one and this one as opposed to on the men's side where you're like Here comes the clay season. Rafa's going to dominate. Now we're on grass. Federer is going to dominate. Okay. Now, you know, so there's, there's kind of, um, a difference for whatever reason where it's tougher to maintain long-term consistency unless you're Serena Williams, obviously. Right. Um, and, and, uh, but all that said, um, the women's product right now is freaking awesome. Like they have so many like top tier talent and like, I would say, of the you know when the Australian Open happened in January, like if you told me to rank like the top ten matches I saw, like eight or nine of them were women's matches. Like they were just it was just a better product, and like part of that is like okay, Fed is still dominating. Like we saw this last year, blah blah blah. But I mean beyond that, you know there was just the the level of competition and the fact that you had like this whole crop of women who were all peaking they're all in like the right age range that any one of them could win a bunch of them were trying to go for their first slams it just made it absolutely fascinating to watch and watch it play out and um you know i I have high hopes for you know the women's french open looks like it's going to be just as good uh wimbledon could be just as good and now you throw serena back into the mix as she gets back in shape but You know, the the women's product is in extremely good hands right now. And it's, if anything, it's more entertaining than the men's side where you have like a handful of players who you think legitimately have a chance to win any slam.
0: And so, yeah, when we talk about one-on-one sports, I mean, the whole point of of kind of garnering interest um, is being, you know, kind of marketable and and kind of putting you know, being the face of the sport. And obviously the uh, Williams sisters have done that. They've had a monopoly on that in the WTP for God knows how long now. I mean, since I was a little kid. Um, and obviously, I mean, they've slowed down a little bit, but there's still, um, the, whether they win or lose, they're always going to be the face of, of that sport. Um, and I think they always have that going for them. And they'll always be the, you know, the Sharapovas and in the, in the household uh, names of the world. But um, is tennis more driven by... Um, how do I kind of word this? It, it, you know, w- within when it's a one-on-one sport, be it boxing or or you know, Olympics or anything that you're going to bet one person versus another person, a lot of even what goes into building that line is kind of how marketable they are, and you can kind of fade that that public love or that <laughs> recency bias. Is there kind yeah. of new faces that are kind of coming up within? Um, not even just for the women's, but the women's and the men of kind of who can you know be be the next Federer, be the next Nadal, be the next uh, Williams sisters. Uh, you know what I mean? Is is tennis kind of yeah. looking at itself to kind of take that next step or is it just kind of they're happy doing what they do because these these players have such a long shelf life
1: gosh man it on the men's side I guess kind of the state of health of the men's tour right now is not great Mm -hmm. um Federer and Nadal are getting old uh Federer is I think turns like 37 this year I say that as I turn 37 this year as well but that's another story um (laughs) the uh I'm not old for the handicapping world, though. I'm young for the handicapping world. Uh, Yeah, Federer and Nadal are kind of aging out of the sport. Um, We don't expect to see them for many more years. And when their names aren't in the draw, when they're not able to market the sport with them at the top of any given tournament, it's going to have a huge financial impact on how, you know, ticket sales, TV sales, things like that. There are people who are only in the sport because they are fans of those players. Um, Djokovic and Murray, who were the other half of the – of the big four of the last generation, um, those guys look hurt slash injured to the tune of it's unlikely we see them play a top level tennis again. Mm-hmm. So what do we go? Where, where do we go now? Um, the guys that were in the generation below them were like mentally abused by them. <laughs> if you can, if you can get, I don't know if that makes sense, but like, they like just his got situation? by these guys so oh, many times oh okay no no just just in, in on the court right like, right they okay just, they just like, every on that time level. there yep. was a big match and it was like you're the next gen come on take the step beat Federer. you lost three nothing you know like it, like they just have taken so many lumps from the this the big four that i don't think we're ever going to see much out of these guys mm-hmm. and so there's kind of like this gap where there's not like uh, you know, there's not like a next tier of guys who are the peak, you know, in their prime who are going to, you know, wrestle control of the tour away from the old farts. And um, we saw it last year. Federer and Nadal split them slams, for Christ's sakes. Right. Federer won the Aussie Open in Wimbledon. He won Wimbledon without dropping a set. Nadal won the French Open without dropping a set. Those accomplishments are ridiculous, let alone the fact that they're that was like Nadal, I mean, that was Nadal's 10th French Open and then Federer, who just won the Australian Open, that was his 20th Grand Slam. Like, it's crazy that that no one has, like, knocked them off the pedestal. But here we are. And so then there's kind of this gap where the next generation really is underperformed. And so then you have to look to, like, literally, like, the up-and-coming youth, right? Like, guys who are in, like, the 24 to 18 range. And you're like, okay, well, wh- which of you guys is going to emerge then? Because somebody's got to win these tournaments. And like, there's a, there's a couple of guys uh, who have the talent. There's a couple of guys who have kind of the mental makeup, um, but it's not obvious because n- you know no one, none of them have won slams, and none of them have even made particularly deep runs at the slams. And so it's like if you're not. <laughs> You know, if you're not winning slams, then you're not the face of tennis. I'm sorry. Right. And so guy like Sasha Zverev, who I mentioned, who won Munich last year, he took a major step in winning Rome Masters. That was a high-profile tournament. People were like, oh, my gosh, this kid's coming up. He's going to be the next big thing. He goes into uh, the French Open and gets knocked out the first round. And it's like, oh, great. You know, well done. He goes through the summer. He goes to the um, the Canada Masters Tournament. It's called the Rogers. And it was in Montreal last year. The Coupe Roger. Uh, he beat Federer in the final. It was a crazy, you know, it was a crazy accomplishment. This kid, Sasha Zverev, you know, 20-year-old 20, 20 kid from Germany, beat Federer in the Masters final. And people were like, oh, my gosh, he's going to make a run at the U.S. Open. He gets a cherry draw at the U.S. Open they fitted him up in this Pharrell-designed Adidas kit that was, like, retro, like, 1970s block colors. Like, everyone was, like, high on this kid. He was the third favorite for the tournament. And uh, I think he got knocked out in the second round. And so I was like, okay, you know, like, he, this is this guy, is he ever going to make the leap? And, you yeah, know, so there's to a, live up to there the is hype. a It happens ton. in e-
0: sport when you're trying to push yeah. somebody and they, f- and they fall Yeah, completely understand. So there's
1: a, t- there's a ton of pressure on that generation right now to do something <laughs> and... Um, you know whether we see it in 2018 or not is is anyone's guess. Um, but you know, absolutely 2019, 2020, I think we'll we'll see them emerge.
0: I want to kind of wrap this up, and I want to kind of I want to tackle two more questions. One to me is, what is the tennis market uh, like? Because it is not only. I mean, tennis, I don't want to say it's not popular within the United States because, again, as we're talking about niche markets, I think it's one of the more popular. I think that UFC is probably the most popular among the niche markets. I think boxing and boxing purists are kind of right below that. Um, And I think the tennis is maybe the 3-4 right after golf, uh, perhaps, amongst casual fans. Um, But is there – because it's it's different when you talk about kind of where these niche markets kind of limits open and kind of where the market will take them especially – Uh, again speaking from experience where so many big favorites lose you know time and time again is the market um, is it very fluid is it you know again in for when you go back to UFC I mean a a minus 180 can balloon out to minus 4 or 500 if the right people and the right limits are are kind of bet on things but the limits are kept very low at open um, because odds makers know this and there's less than maybe 3 or 4 that will allow more than a $100 bet at open Um, is this, this market kind of unique in any situation or how does this market kind of shape itself for every tournament, uh, both in the futures and the kind of matchup and, um, you know, day to day, uh, match market.
1: Sure. Sure. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say worldwide tennis is probably the second most bet sport after soccer. Absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I'm Europe, sorry. I
0: meant what I remember within is... like kind of the gambling community, oh, sure. no, 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 you no, know, doubt, no. Uh, no I, and I, stuff like yeah, that
1: You almost have to totally separate them because like the market, like we are, we are getting wagged by whatever's going on in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, no, I don't think there's any market makers out. Maybe there's a hand. maybe there's a couple in like Canada and Australia and the U S it's possible. I don't think so, but it's possible that there are a couple market makers who are really moving lines in tennis. Mm-hmm. I think almost everything is happening in Europe. Um, and the first book that opens is called Marathon Sportsbook, and it's a U.K. book. I don't have any access to it as a U.S. better, um, but I know we always kind of know to go there to look for what are the opening lines are. And they always have a soft landing open. They, they put up money line numbers first for any given matchup. Uh, they get bet to hell. Like, you see them move massive moves in the first like hour. And then Penny will open theirs up about, you know, 15, 30 minutes after marathon, getting an idea of where the market is going with a little bit of larger limits. Right. And then the Penny line kind of governs movement after that. And they take by far away the most, uh, the most money, I believe of the tennis books and, everything that we get access to is U S betters from offshores or if they even put lines up in Vegas for these tournaments is based off of what's being, what's happening in, in the UK. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and in general, like I've kind of, I'm resigned to the fact that like, I'm not, I'm not beating major line moves in tennis.
0: Right. Like there's,
1: I'm not, I'm not like, um, I don't have an alarm clock set. Uh, to wake up at two in the morning when the UK books it's like seven in the morning and they've got lines up for Shanghai, you know, day three, you know, like I, like I, I just know that I'm, I'm not going to be beating these numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't even try. I just kind of keep an eye on it. And, um, I would say it's a, it's a relatively efficient market in that the closing line often is a good indicator, um, of the correct line. Uh, I'd say line movement is misleading about 25% of the time, Mm -hmm. maybe 30, 30% of the time. And um, there's nothing like what we have with like sports insight, where you have bet percentages and fading the public and things like that. That's doesn't exist. Um, No one's out there like, putting a hype video for, you know, sharps hammered, you know, born a church over, you know, of in the semifinal of this match, you know, that, that that's not a, there's not that segment of the betting market doesn't exist as far as I can tell you. Yep. Um, and so you're left with like people who do it regularly, people who are really into it. And then people who are like just getting into it for the first time, uh, and, or are, you know, tailing somebody that they see posting winners, um, and in the U.S., oh, you know, and, and so it was pretty straightforward. Actually, I have a I have a really tight group of kind of tennis handicapper friends that I talk to online pretty regularly, um, and it was pretty easy for us to find each other <laughs> because there wasn't right. many people who were doing it so regularly. Um, and you know, we like to bounce off ideas and things like that, and that definitely helps us make sharper bets over the course of. Of uh, Of a season absolutely i'm sure of that um and you know that it's it's not you know if somebody has, gets into it and has a you know passion for it like by all means d m me but like it's easy to kind of get into if you decide to do it i i would say and there's a there's probably a pretty significant opportunity for you know u s betters to make a move into this market if they feel like they if they have a passion for it, really.
0: You couldn't Um, have have set me up any better. bro. my second question was, (laughs) if somebody is looking to kind of get into this space and start betting tennis, um, you know, pretty seriously or or recreational, recreationally, uh, what kind of, you know, how does somebody get started in the market? You know, again, not that I want 100 people DMing you and and getting your advice, but what would you, you know, tell a mass audience of somebody that wants to get into these niche markets um, and they, you know, They've always been a fan of tennis, but they've never really bet it or you know how does how does one get started in this space again, and you know I'm speaking to the fact that if you have a if you're a fan of tennis, you're always going to have a way greater understanding of it than even somebody like I do who again, I watch maybe one or two of the Grand Slam events of the year, and that's kind of it. but how does you know how did kind of how, what's your advice to somebody that wants to get started in this in this space of this niche market?
1: Mm. well, uh, definitely get a Twitter account. Um and, and follow a handful of folks. I have a couple of lists on my Twitter and there's a good tennis list of like mandatory tennis follows yep. that are huge for information and news. And you kind of you know, you kind of immerse yourself in that for a couple of weeks and you're gonna be like, Oh wow, there's a lot of information here. Um I'm starting to know people's names. You you know, <clears throat> 'cause really I guess if you're getting started, the first thing you're gonna wanna know is like who are these players? How you know what is their history? Where are they from? You know, you know, just try to develop a couple fandoms. Really, like, okay, I like this guy; he keeps winning for me. Or like this guy, I like to fade this guy. You know, like you really kind of want to develop relationships. I think with a couple of players to kind of really cement your interest in the sport. Um, and then I would go to TennisAbstract.com. Is the best database in the universe for tennis. Um, they have like. Such a plethora of data and results and information, head-to-heads, uh, you know, stuff that you would need to judge people's past forms, past forms at specific tournaments, past forms overall, past forms on certain um, surfaces, things like that is all available there, and that is a really great resource. Uh, I would download the Flash Score app for your mobile device. Flash Score has up to the second. Live results for in in match play Um, easy to follow along if you're not watching a television uh, or if you're not streaming the ATP Radio has an app. Actually, ATP Radio is on TuneIn, and you can listen to matches. Listening to matches, I found, is a really great way to learn a ton. Uh, In fact, I've I one of the most one of the best tricks i guess i've learned about betting slams if you were listening to the radio regularly you're gonna they they provide so many more tidbits and details and tips about um you know what's going on with certain players why they're succeeding why they're struggling things like that you glean so much off of the radio broadcast that's really useful um i mentioned tennis tv before is a great way to um stream tennis you can watch i watched it on my apple tv you could watch it on your laptop Uh, again, you know, it's like, uh, you know, rewind and, and replay and, and just look at packaged highlights, things like that is all available there. That's a, that's a great subscription. Um, and, um, yeah, just, uh, kind of learn the hard way and, you know, get your feet wet and, uh, it's, um, it's, oh, I guess. And then the very last piece of advice, maybe the easiest, the easiest piece of advice, um, like if you're getting started sports betting in general and you just wanted like outside of like bankroll management or whatever like to have things like advice like just don't don't play parlays right like it's it's <laughs> just to too tough to win hand. it's just too tough to win long term especially when you're getting started if you're out there swinging on parlays yep with with um with tennis the the um golden rule that i kind of live by is don't lay juice on handicaps on totals because the difference in price that they offer for 22 and a half versus 23 is not, does not match what the actual value in that half point is or that half game. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but basically, if over 22 and a half is minus 115 and over 23 is minus 105, take over 23 every freaking time. Don't even think about it. If you can sell half games on the totals and handicaps, you are going to find yourself substantially more successful over the long term betting tennis. Um, and to a degree, if I was re, if I went back to my 2017 season, I had an amazing season. If I went back and regraded all of those plays based on a standard juice line, um, I don't think I would have made any money. If I, I think I, I probably would have broken even, if not been in the negative to be honest because that's how much um you know that's how much it matters when you're high volume betting you know I, I think i played like 700 plays in tennis last year and my average odds were probably like plus 125 or plus 130 um so i only had to hit like 40 something percent to make mm-hmm. money um and if you take if you kick that up to 52 or 55 like for good luck you know you you're you're in deep trouble in tennis especially because of the the amount of upsets we see
0: Absolutely, bro. So, well, we did it. So uh, I want you to be able to plug everything you have going on in this space because it's it's absolutely amazing what you're doing, kind of uh, the voice that you become. Um, obviously, you know, you have the podcast, um, your Twitter, that's that's been doing amazing and yes. all your content. So go ahead and plug away where people can find you, man.
1: Of course. Well, thank you for the opportunity to come on to Inside Vegas. I've been enjoying your podcast and I love your venture as well. So this has been a cool experience. Um, I do a podcast as well. We're up to about 60 episodes. Uh, the deep dive. We're on tunes We're on SoundCloud. We're on Stitcher, and um, my uh, co-host and I, we our passion is football. But uh, when we're not talking NFL handicapping, we're talking about tennis handicapping or the Masters or the NBA playoffs coming up. We're gonna do a whole series in the next couple of weeks talking the NBA playoffs. Um, we're gonna make a lot of money in the NBA playoffs. I'm super excited. So. Uh, check us out on the Deep Dive podcast or at WhaleCapper on Twitter dot com. Um, I'm there too often.
0: So <laughs> yeah, join the club, <laughs> and again, all every single thing you've ever put out there is free. So, um, for <laughs> anyone, right. if for anyone that is. Um, again, trying to get into the space, you know, I, I always try to bring on the right people on this podcast that do things the right way, whether they charge it or they do not. And everything that you've ever done is completely free. And, and I can't commend you, uh, kind of enough for, for kind of bringing, um, doing the, you know, doing the right thing. Cause that's, there's different, <laughs> there's different, uh, thought processes there, especially with me. Not but, doing uh, the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. Doing it the right way. Um, and, and yes, you know, seriously kind of basing your, you know, social media presence off of giving people free information and free content, brother. Um, so again, thank you for coming on, man. And uh, again, free, uh, free content and anything you could ever want to know with uh, at Will Capper on Twitter. Um, the following is growing over 12,000 followers. You've done amazing things in the space, buddy. So again, continue with the best of luck in the space and, and all the can success in your tennis handicapping.
1: Well, thank you so much, and I look forward to talking to you again sometime and continuing to listen to Inside Vegas.